0: Film spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Upstream Color premieres on demand this week,
1: the same day as its DVD release. And watch Not Fade Away, starring James Gandolfini and John
0: Magaro, also playing on demand. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on Cable. The art house is now in your house.
1: This podcast is also brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com
0: SVU. This episode of SVU is also brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, Go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code SVU5.
1: From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt
0: Singer. On this episode of SVU, Allison and I prepare some shaky New Zealand accents as we head down under to talk about Jane Campion's miniseries. Top of the Lake. That was it, right there. It was was pretty shaky. Dead on, dead on. Yes. As (laughs) shaky accents go, it was dead on.
1: Um, Before that, we'll bring you Q Shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Now, inspired by Top of the Lake, we thought we'd take a look at some other films from Oscar nominated female directors. Except, of course, in the history of the Academy Awards, there are only four of them. Oops. So it was actually easier for us to look at films and filmmakers from New Zealand instead. And anyway, what was all that rigorous accent work for? Quite right, Allison. <laughs> But first, that's, that's up, pretty shaky. That is pretty you shaky. nailed. It. Uh, but first up is opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, movies on demand on cable, in which we spotlight a few notable
0: films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week? Our first pick this week, I believe, will be available by the time our listeners are hearing this. It's a documentary called "Don't Stop Believing: Every Man's Journey," and it's a documentary about the band Journey. They have such great. 70s and 80s cheese rock anthems uh, turned recent karaoke staples, at least for me, including Don't Stop Believin', Open Arms, and my personal favorite, Faithfully. Uh, a few years ago, the band had separated from their lead singer, Steve Perry, uh, who, if you've ever listened to Journey, I think you would agree, he has a very iconic one-of-a-kind voice, very high, very powerful, not an easy person to replace. Or to
1: sing along with
0: the karaoke, true, actually. True, <laughs> true. But I guess, technically, his one-of-a-kind voice, There's it was really two-of-a-kind, because, as this documentary shows, the band eventually found a replacement for Steve Perry in the form of Arnel Pineda, a Filipino Journey fan and musician who had posted this uncanny, not quite an impression, but a, a version of Faithfully performed with the zoo band at what i think was a hard rock cafe in the philippines if i'm not mistaken and i might i might be uh he had posted this video on youtube where one of the guys from journey saw it and said there's our new lead singer it's an unbelievable story but it's true and the rest is history or at least this documentary which tells pineda and journey's um journey i guess you could say on his first world tour with the band I just clicked on one last link and I pushed it know, popped up with his band singing a Manila. I go, this is, is too good to be true His voice was huge we'll I, said, I said, but can he speak English? I got this
1: message Interested in singing with the real band Journey This is impossible
0: I would sing just to survive I was impressed I just looked at John and I go, that's it I haven't seen this movie yet, Allison, but I, I do like Journey. I have a very soft, affectionate spot in my heart for Journey, not just because I enjoy singing their songs badly at karaoke, but I think they're—I think they're—they're uh, they're a good band. And I, I haven't seen this documentary yet. And I am actually really curious about it because I knew the story of Arnel uh, Pineda. I'd heard about this, and it's fascinating. Oh, it's totally fascinating! Totally fascinating, right? So uh, the documentary got pretty good reviews. So I'm, I'm curious to see it. I haven't got a chance to yet. I'm hoping I'll get a chance to see it soon. It's called Don't Stop Believin', colon, Every Man's Journey, and it's available now on VOD. And we've got two more quick picks for you this week. The first one is entitled Aftershock. It'll be available on VOD starting on May 10th. This horror movie, disaster movie hybrid premiered at the Toronto Film Festival last fall. It also played at Fantastic Fest. And Sitches, and just last week, actually, it was playing the brand new Stanley Film Festival at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, which is uh, the hotel that inspired the novel The Shining. They didn't shoot the movie The Shining there. It's just a weird coincidence that it's named The Stanley Hotel, <laughs> and Stanley Kubrick ended up directing the film. But the the book The Shining was inspired in part by this hotel, and they, they had a whole sort of like horror film festival there, brand new. Apparently it was really cool. It sounded great. I was following along on like Twitter so and online. It sounded really, really great. It seemed like a really interesting place to see some horror movies. It seemed like a kind of spooky – Place, But anyway, this film was one of the films at that festival. It was directed by Nicholas Lopez and co-written by Lopez with a name you might recognize, Eli Roth, who also co-stars in the movie as an American tourist in Chile, who along with his guides are out for a night on the town when this massive earthquake hits, sparking violence and looting and all kinds of craziness. This also got a pretty decent reception at those festivals. Another movie I haven't seen yet. Um, I'm actually curious to see it. If you like Eli Roth's other movies, Cabin Fever, The Hostile Movies, or you're a fan of Disaster Movies, this one might be something to check out. Again, that's called Aftershock, and it is available starting on May 10th. And lastly, available starting on May 13th, is the film Sightseers. This one is from director Ben Wheatley, the very talented British filmmaker behind Down Terrace and Kill List. This is his third feature. It is a dark, and I mean dark, comedy about a couple on their first vacation together, road tripping through the English countryside. But little does Tina know that her new man, Chris, is actually Allison. A serial killer. And little does Chris know that Tina might be kind of into dating a serial killer, which is very convenient for all parties. Uh, Like Aftershock, this is a genre film with a very impressive uh, film festival pedigree. It played at Cannes, Locarno, Fantastic Fest, and Sundance. I saw it at Fantastic Fest, and I have to be honest, Allison, I was not the biggest fan of this movie. Certainly, I was... I was not as high on it as I was on Kill List. But I'm like in the extreme, extreme minority on this one. Everyone else loved this movie. It's gotten great reviews everywhere. I don't really know. I think I know one other person who saw it and didn't really care for it. Everyone else loves this movie. So if you did like Kill List and Down Terrace, if you're a fan of Ben Wheatley's work, you might want to check this one out. That's called Sightseers, and it's available starting on May 13th. We are thrilled to have Audible back as a sponsor of FilmSpotting SVU this week. And Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. And I think Allison, you have a recommended title to offer to the listeners this week. Is that right?
1: Yes. And uh, this week, I decided or just go like off the reservation completely, pick something not really film related. <gasps> I know, but this is a book and an audiobook that I've been really looking forward to. So I was happy to see that it is on Audible. It is called Nosferatu. That is spelled N-O-S. The number four, letter A, and the number two, like a license plate. It is written by Joe Hill and narrated by Kate Mulgrew of... Matthew? Star Trek Voyager fame? That is correct. We were actually talking about Star Trek before, so now it brings us full circle, even though you weren't listening to that (laughs) earlier conversation, so you didn't know that. Anyway, this is a book about a main character who is this young woman who has a talent, like a kind of magical talent for finding things. Uh, And she has, as a child, a run-in with someone named Charles Manx, who himself has a kind of dark power, and he tends to kidnap children in his Rolls-Royce Wraith the license plate is the title. Uh, and so this is a kind of uh, horror fantasy book. Uh, it's 700 pages long. So there's a lot more going in uh, going into it than I am describing here. Uh, you know, Joe Hill is uh, an author who also wrote Heart Shaped Box, uh, a novel I liked a lot, and Horns, which is actually being adapted into uh, a film that I I believe is coming out this year in October, directed by Alexandra uh, Aja and starring Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, I liked Horns and Heart Shaped Blocks a lot. Uh, He is also, incidentally, uh, the son of Stephen King, who I understand is also a writer. Um, (laughs) And uh, so he, you know, managed to establish himself kind of without King's, uh, you know, name kind of overhanging his career. But this book is actually, this new book is supposed to be uh, a little bit of an homage, a kind of nod to his father's work, along with uh, linking back into his own work. So it's a, it's a book I'm really looking forward to, uh, either listening to or reading. I have not had a chance to get to it yet, but uh, I expect nothing but great things given Hill's past work. So
0: that is Nosferatu. Alright, so for Nosforatu or another free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. That's audiblepodcast.com slash SVU. So a whole podcast? How bizarre on on New Zealand, and it, it seems only fitting. I mean, we're talking about Top of the Lake this episode, which maybe not the best sales pitch for a New Zealand vacation in terms of the content. The people don't all come across. Too nicely, but the place looks stunning. I mean, you it's, can't ask for a, a yeah. more beautiful place to visit or to see in the show. So, I mean, it's it's the obvious theme, but sometimes we like to go with the obvious theme here on on SVU. So, Allison, is there anything we want to say generally before we get to some of our picks?
1: Well, just that you know, New Zealand has a population of like I think like four and a half million. It's not a very big country population wise, so it's really it's kind of impressive like how much it tends to show up in film just mm-hmm. in terms of either like people who are from there or i mean maybe less it's less Surprising that it gets that things are shot there so often. As you said, it's gorgeous and it looks conveniently like Middle Earth. So, uh, you know, it's pretty handy as a stand in for um, kind of amazingly like fantastical locations
0: in general. Vancouver is to New York City or various other metropolises as New Zealand Zealand is is to Middle Earth. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) yeah, fantasy fantasy Wonderland. Yeah.
1: So, you know, obviously you have Peter Jackson, who is the probably the most prominent and most powerful uh, current filmmaker from New Zealand yes you've also got Jane Campion who as I mentioned before was nominated for Best Director for the Piano in 1993 can you name the other three female directors who've been nominated oh
0: man uh, well Catherine Bigelow right? who won she won she won but um, boy that's a good question mm-hmm.
1: Sophia Coppola, Sophia Coppola, and then the first one is actually Lena Wirtmuller oh. in 1976 for Seven Beauties, which is actually a film I've never heard I've of. I've never seen that yeah, one. Yeah, she's probably better known for Swept Away. Swept Away, yeah. that's right. But uh, so those are the four. Jane Campion is one of them. You know, the other interesting thing about uh, all these filmmakers from New Zealand is that. There are a whole bunch who just kind of rattled around Hollywood turning out blockbusters. I mean, Lee Tamahori, whose whose kind of breakout film was Once Were Warriors, Mm -hmm. you know, a pretty well-known export from New Zealand, did Die Another Day, did Triple X, The Devil's Double more Mm -hmm. recently, Mm -hmm. also had a kind of Hollywood scandal in which he was arrested in drag whoops oh um, i totally missed that one Oh, that was a good one wow. um, <laughs> jeff murphy uh who's success he had a big success in new zealand with a film called goodbye pork pie which unfortunately is not streaming i want mm. it sounded really interesting and i wanted to see it he did young guns 2 under siege 2 and free jack <laughs> andrew nickel of course did uh, yes. lord of war in time gattaca and most recently the host Martin Campbell did GoldenEye. another Bond, another Bond director. Yeah, who Casino knew- Royale, Green Lantern. Right. Uh, Roger Donaldson uh, had a film called Smash Palace that was his kind of breakout, which I also wanted to see, not on streaming. Went on to do Cocktail. Did he do Clear and present danger? the bank job. Oh, the bank job, bank- I, oh, the bank job is good. Yeah, uh, and uh, Vincent Ward even he he did uh, a few lo- local films. Then did What Dreams May Come and has a story credit for Alien Three. So a lot of exports so, who have gone on to kind of do quite. Quite well in the the studio industry you know which is an interesting phenomenon uh, but yeah you know uh, otherwise mo- a lot of these kind of oh,
0: the, oh i'm gonna upset somebody uh, clear and present danger was directed by philip noyce who's australian yeah. oh,
1: no! oh no i'm gonna get in trouble for that get one. out yeah. sorry about uh, that sorry about that oh it's all right i'm not offended but yeah so i you know i think the thing is like a lot of these kind of local films that were made i think they're during the 70s and 80s there was that kind of resurgence uh, of a uh, local film scene not available unfortunately so yeah. we didn't get a chance to check those out and a lot of them sound very interesting so mm. I'm, uh, I'm a little sad about that
0: oh did roger donaldson did uh, seeking justice which was right which awesome was horrible no <laughs> it was terrible how dare you oh stop how dare you oh my god take my apologies roger donaldson i mistook you for philip noyce but Seeking Justice, a.k.a. Justice, a.k.a. The Hungry Rabbit Jumps, was <laughs> top-notch. Uh,
1: top-notch. Well, well, with that, why don't we move on to our, our first picks? All here. right, all right. Um, I, I'll, why don't I go ahead and start? Sure. I think we both have the same unignorable New Zealand director for yeah, our first Yeah, you've already picks. mentioned him. Yes. It's Peter Jackson. Uh, it, my pick is Heavenly Creatures, which is available for streaming on Netflix and on Hulu. Uh, you know, Peter Jackson was, until this point, this is a 1994 film, He was known for these kind of splatter films and these horror comedies like Brain Dead and Bad Taste. Bad Taste is actually actually available for rent on Amazon. Or Meet the Feebles, which is, uh, I think, a little harder to find still, but really fun and offensive if you have a chance to find it. It's like a NC-17 rated kind of Muppets knockoff about the backstage of a Muppets-type show, except there's just like sex and drug use and violence, and it's ridiculous. So uh, he was approached to do this kind of more serious film, and it became his major international breakout. It's about... A real crime that happened in 1954 in which these two girls murdered someone in Christchurch. Um, and the film features Melanie Linsky as Pauline Parker and Kate Winslet as Juliet Holm in their screen debuts. And they're both very good uh, and very young in this. So the film is interesting in that it it's about this obsessive friendship between these two girls who are both a little off anyway. They're a little unstable. They have a history of kind of problems and uh, hospitalizations. And they latch on to one another and they have this fantasy world that they develop that's uh, you know, they kind of populate with these characters and these stories and it becomes so rich that it kind of eats away at their own sense of realities to the point where at a certain point Juliet is, is supposed to go away. They have trouble at home and... That's when they start coming up with this plan to murder someone. Oh, don't cry, Gina. Oh, Gina, please don't cry. We're not going to be separated. We're not. Oh. They can't make us. They can't. They can't. Mm-hmm. They're not. Oh, please. Oh, I, I hate you. Oh and the film is just so interesting for coming from the point this unstable point of view like it manages to capture both this adoles- sense of adolescence in general but also just maybe like a folia it's they they're not together they enable each other to have this really unstable not mindset that's not grounded in reality and the the film captures that in great ways and really brings in uh, you know Jackson's background, doing these more genre genre films, and, and into something that's grounded in the real world, but representing people who are not. Um, it's it's a really good film. If you haven't had a chance to see it yet, it's kind of one of the like well known films uh, from that era, and is certainly worth taking a look at if you only know Jackson from his. Giant blockbuster work because he's working on a much smaller scale here. But you can also just see his talent as a filmmaker, uh, you know, in this kind of more human, less elf-oriented, you know, hobbit-oriented scale. Uh, it's it's really good and it holds up really well. That's Heavenly Creatures. It's available for streaming on Netflix and Hulu.
0: Okay, I mean, we wanted to throw in one more Peter Jackson pick here. And it's his follow-up to Heavenly Creatures, actually, at least his feature follow-up. And it is called The Frighteners from 1996, uh, directed by Peter Jackson, obviously. And that one is available on Netflix. And this is a really interesting sort of transitional piece between his earlier – New Zealand indie stuff and moving towards that model of the Peter Jackson that we now know as the guy who did Lord of the Rings and now The Hobbit. Have you ever seen The Frighteners, Allison? I have. It's a pretty interesting movie. I mean, it is sort of a blockbuster with lots of effects. It has a lot of effects, yes. a lot of ghosts. But it's a pretty interesting movie and uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Michael J. Fox stars as this. He's sort of a uh, he's like a paranormal investigator it's a, kind of complicated to describe it's a really describe. complicated story actually yeah. considering <laughs> I mean he's he's a paranormal investigator he seems like a con man you know it's set up almost where he's like a con man of some kind. But it turns but he's basically he both is a con man and an actual legitimate psychic. He can see ghosts. He's like Whoopi Goldberg in ghost. Right. He can see ghosts and communicate with ghosts, but and he just but he's friends with them. And he he basically uses them to haunt people in a scary but not serious way. And then he cleanses the houses for money. That's his that's what, what he does to make a living. But then things get complicated by these actual kind of like malevolent ghosts And he is sort of the only person who can stop this malevolent ghost who's like a serial killer on a kill spree. I think I'm going to throw up. Trump. very kind of complicated twisty plot, but a fun movie, and and it does sort of show you that very ambitious uh, visual side of Peter Jackson, the guy who he would become in terms of, just like the opening shot for almost no reason, the opening shot of this movie it starts like outside a house in the rain, and then it goes like through the window, which is closed and then down through a hole in like the floor, down to like the next level, and then up and around the side, it's like you know, like, showing off unbelievably, and I think this is one of the first movies his special effects shop, Weta, made when right when they were started. And the effects, I mean, I, I didn't get a chance to rewatch the entire movie for the podcast, the, but what I saw, the effects have dated a little bit. I remember being kind of blown away by this movie when I saw it as a kid. Now it does look a little bit, uh, a little old. It is one of the, like, the first uh, CGI movies. But I, I, think, I think it's worth check, checking out. I'd act, I wish I'd had time to rewatch the whole thing. I would have been curious to see it again. I, I always liked Michael J. Fox's performance in this movie too. One of his last movie roles. So that's The Frighteners, and that is available on Netflix.
1: Well, you mentioned Weta, and my next pick is actually written and directed by someone who worked there. It's called Good for Nothing. It is streaming on Netflix. Mm. It's a 2011 film. I think it got its theatrical release last year. Written and directed by Mike Wallace, uh, his directorial debut. And this is a film, actually, I remember being mentioned because someone, I remember reading a review where someone said it had like one of the most offensive, egregious premises for a film that they could think of, which I was like, well, how can I turn that down? down?" (laughs) So basically, this is a Western uh, and it's, it's set in, you know, a vague American West, even though it's shot in New Zealand, continuing, you know, actually a well-established tradition of shooting these very American, this very American genre of the Western, uh, not in the American West. It does reference spaghetti Westerns. It's about a, uh, an English woman named Isabella Montgomery who is on a train going to this ranch uh, her family owns when she is kidnapped and by someone, this nameless man who is uh, kind of the main character, who takes her off and he's going to rape her. And then he realizes that he cannot. He is impotent. So then, the bulk of the movie is him kind of dragging her with him on this trip while he goes to see different specialists to see if they can address his problem. The first after like the film is like, he does not you say anything. You watched the movie. I did. Okay. He does not say anything for, mu- for like minutes and minutes into the film. And when he eventually does, it's because he's tracked down a doctor and he says, my dick's broke. Now look, there's a Chinese mining village about a day from here. Maybe I'll to help you. there into that sort of thing. Heathen medicine, but you don't seem the sort to of mind. What's your meaning? There's no meaning. A good night, sir. So I think the 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 problem that you would have with this movie if you took that. premise at face value is that it is offensive. However, in the context of the movie, which is like, it's kind of like half a goof, you know, it's almost like half a, a kind of parody of, uh, spaghetti Western. It just, it, Basically, you know, it's, I would say, like, the anti-masculinity kind of that, that defines the genre of the Western. Like, this is a guy who, despite being chased down by a posse, just is so concerned with his uh, impotence problem that he, you know, treks around. And meanwhile, of course, they kind of have a romance, the two people, in this, like, Stockholm Syndrome-y way. It's I. It's not entirely successful, no? <laughs> I think. It, it's not, I, like, it's not... It really isn't as problematic as I've just made it seem. It's really – it's it has a few tonal issues, but it is, for the most part, meant to be kind of like a, a weird, uh, deliberate reference to, to the kind of an overturning of the genre. Right. Uh, I mean, like, there's a, another part where two characters get into a duel – uh, they're standing by a river and the duel goes on for a really long time because they're both apparently terrible shots. So they're just firing at one another <laughs> while people are watching. And it just, like, it takes like minutes and it's very funny. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that the problem with this film is just that there's maybe not enough of a, a kind of momentum behind it to either have it be a direct parody or not. Uh, it kind of hovers in between which is uh, where the tonal issues are but it is also it's stunning like it's gorgeous looking you know New Zealand is an incredibly photogenic place and it makes for this kind of great like almost like mythic western landscape that doesn't look like anything recognizable in in the U.S. and yet like you know it's very clearly like it, it calls to mind those landscapes so it's an interesting film and I think you know has a lot to it, that's promising. As much as it's also pretty thin, uh, and you know how. Where else will you find uh, a premise like that anywhere
0: else? That's good for nothing. It is streaming on Netflix. All right, I don't know if you sold me on that one, Allison. Yeah, I, I, I kind of figured. My next film is a 2007 film, which I had heard of. I'd never gotten a chance to see before this week. I was able to watch it for the podcast. It's called Eagle vs. Shark, and it's directed by Taika Waititi. And Allison, have you seen this movie? I have seen it. And the pause suggests to me you did not enjoy it. I did not. All right. Well, within 60 seconds of the, starting the movie, I, I was with you. I hated it. 60 seconds, I was like, oh, I hate this movie. I'm going to have to turn it off. I, I left it on. And within five minutes, I was laughing. And I was enjoying it and kind of really into it. For me, uh, sort of like what you were saying about your last film, it's a mixed bag. This is not a five-star recommendation. This is like a three, three three-and-a-half-star recommendation. And if you're not a fan of quirky indie romantic comedies, you should just stay far, far away from this movie because that's what it is. However, if you find yourself often enjoying those kinds of films, I would recommend it. Jemaine Clement from Flight of the Concord stars as Jared. He's a dork who works at a video game store, and he is the object of obsession for this very uh, insular young woman named Lily who's played by an actress I didn't know before named Lauren Horsley and Lily works at a fast food restaurant and she sort of like waits all day for the moment where Jared comes in for his daily visit even though he is completely uninterested he, you know he barely realizes she exists you know he, she is nothing to him and he is like her entire universe he, she, she worships him uh, she manages to sort of like sneak her way into a party he's having where she worms her way into his heart uh, in a scene that i really enjoyed by becoming the best at the party in this hilarious mortal combat inspired uh, sp- video game called fight man and so she impresses him you know by being the best of the party and then when she fights him in the finals she of course lets him win uh while gazing longingly at him this is a plane i made
1: guitar Emery board, fruit board. Painted eggs. Jewelry. Watch wallet.
0: Wow. From there, the, the movie kind of, I would say oddly, and maybe not entirely successfully, shuttles off into this tangent about him fighting this bully from his high school. He goes back home. She follows him home. He wants to fight this bully who picked on him as a kid. I don't know if that stuff really works. Um, Although the ending I found effective and very sweet. Um, It's funny, though. I I really liked these two characters. I liked them as a couple. And I liked all those early scenes a lot. You know, their sort of courtship in a a very strange sort of courtship. I did find it interesting to look at the reaction to this movie because I thought it was pretty funny and charming and uh, it did uh, most critics were with you Allison or at least half it only got a 53% on rotten tomatoes and i looked at a few of the reviews and they all mentioned napoleon dynamite and what i found interesting is they you know everyone mentioned that and i didn't even think of that movie until they said it and i could see it immediately when they when they said it you know all the characters are kind of quirky and jared's family is very eccentric and they their house is sort of very like you know, like, uh, everyone dresses in old, schlocky, 80s clothes, and it's very retro decor. So I could see it, but it's funny. I, like, I didn't make the connection, probably because I haven't seen Napoleon Dynamite in six years or whatever it is. So, I don't know. I, I wonder if maybe this movie got a little bit of a raw deal because of that. Because I don't think this movie was, like, in, like I don't think uh, Taika Waititi saw that movie and was like, I'm going to make my own Napoleon Dynamite, you know? I mean, they came out close to one another, but not... You know, I don't think he was trying to rip off Napoleon Dynamite. It just seemed less fresh because it came out in its wake. So it's just interesting how context can influence our... Uh, viewership of a movie. Because I didn't I, I thought more of like uh, Manic Pixie Dream Girl movies because that's sort of what uh, Lily's character is, except the movie is from her perspective. You know, it's like she's the Manic Pixie Dream Girl in the sense that she like redeems this loser, but she's the more interesting character and she's the character who's the focal point and we're seeing the movie from her perspective, which I liked a lot. But uh, you you were not a fan of this movie. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought it was overwhelmingly Napoleon Dynamite. Like really? I, it was kind of... It, yeah, to the point where I just I had trouble just watching it. Do you think that he was inspired by Napoleon Dynamite? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. It did feel very strongly that way at the time, but uh-huh. I haven't seen it since basically it came out. Right. I should point out that his second film boy yes. uh was much better received i mm-hmm. think overall even though it ha- he had to kind of self-distribute it right but uh that is not available on right. streaming unfortunately
0: right. and eagle versus shark is available on netflix so you know look, look you can you know take it with a grain of salt you've heard my opinion you've heard allison's opinion we've told you other people it's you know you might want to try it sample it see if you like it i i have to say i found it pretty charming on the whole uh so that's eagle versus shark it's available on netflix
1: All right. My last pick was actually uh, someone on Twitter directed me this way. I had not heard of this film and I thought it was really interesting. That film is Crush. It's a 1992 film. It is streaming on Hulu, directed by Alison McLean, who is a Canadian director who I think was living in New Zealand at the time, maybe better known for directing 1999's Jesus's Son uh and this is a film starring Marsha gay hardin as in this in a really interesting femme fatale type character the film starts off her na- her character's name is lane and she's an american and she is driving through new zealand with her friend christina who is a literary critic and they're off to meet this kind of acclaimed author who's gone off to live uh in or near uh, Rotorua, I think is the name of the town, which is this area in New Zealand that's kind of known for hot springs and mud pools and uh, like this kind of Maori culture scene. Uh, So they, uh, Lane is driving and she's going very fast and then they get into a car crash. And this happens like right in the beginning of the film. She gets up and just leaves her friend there in the wreck, apparently seriously injured and goes off to the home, home of this writer and kind of... Like kind of befriends slash like almost half seduces his teenage daughter and then seduces him and never seems to really think about what happened to her friend who was seriously injured and ends up in the hospital. So it's got this weird, almost like dream logic to the beginning. It's like a little Lynchian. And then it comes together a bit more and becomes maybe a little bit more of a standard, melod- a little bit of a melodrama in how the the domestic de- dynamics unfold. But it, it is, I, I think, a really interesting performance from uh, Marsha Gay Harden, who it, it reminded me of also like Frances McDormand in Blood Simple, or even Linda Fiorentino in Last Seduction, which are all films that came out around this time in the, the kind of early to mid-90s, who are just like, not your usual femme fatale character. There's something very... Quirky and very indie about them, and uh, you know it works for uh, for this character just because you're never really sure if she's just uh, a psychopath or if she's somehow just been blocking out trauma.
0: She gonna come out of it?
1: No, I don't know. Maybe I haven't been to visit her yet. Actually, I was driving. I'm sorry, I've got to go to work. I'd offer you a lift, but... But you don't want to. That's okay. I have a car. But you should come by and visit me. I'm only here for a couple of days. Why would I want to do that? Blind impulse. The film, I think, it doesn't completely come together at the end, but has some really interesting themes about female friendship and also how it can kind of, like, there can be, like, just as much, it can be just as fraught with jealousy and kind of competition as a romance, you know, then there's, especially in what happens between... Uh, her character and the daughter versus the father and the sense of betrayal that the daughter has that she starts taking up with her father with her father
0: so that is crush it is currently streaming on hulu okay and we wanted to finish up just by mentioning i i I told (laughs) i told allison that after the how many hours is it six six hours the six hours of top of the lake that i really i had i had had my fill of jane campion i'd overdosed practically i don't want to spoil our review but that was a lot of of anything to watch and i had i was sort of uh, pressed for time so i didn't really have a chance to watch or rewatch any of these movies but we did want to say that several other jane campion films are available so if you're interested in, in jane campion's work Besides Top of the Lake, you can watch a few of her other movies on streaming right now, including The Piano, which Allison has already mentioned. That's available on Netflix. That's a great film. I've seen it. I haven't seen it in a while, but I have seen that one. And then her earlier films, which were really sort of her kind of calling cards the way that Heavenly Creatures was for Peter Jackson and Angel at My Table and Sweetie, those are both available on Hulu Plus. Those are Criterion Collection films. Uh, And they're available for streaming on Hulu through the Criterion Collection there. I've actually never seen either of those. Allison, have you seen? I've seen Angel at My Table, which is very good. And that's about uh, New Zealand author Janet Frame. Uh, This is from the Criterion Collection description. The film follows Frame along her inspiring journey from a poverty-stricken childhood to a misdiagnosis of schizophrenia and electroshock therapy to finally international literary fame, and the film won a bunch of awards, including the special jury prize at the Venice Film Festival. That's from 1990. Sweetie was from 1989. Uh, This is about a hazardous relationship between the button-down, superstitious Kay, and her rampaging, devil-may-care sister, Sweetie, and their family's profoundly rotten roots. So... All three of those films, if, if, if you are the opposite of me and you want more Jane Campion after you watch Top of the Lake, all three of those films are available now for streaming. The Piano is on Netflix, and Sweetie and An Angel at My Table are both available on Hulu Plus.
1: So this episode is brought to you by Shutterstock.com, which is where you can find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's for a website, multimedia presentation, a film project. Uh, they have over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animation, and 3D motion graphics. They also have clips in a variety of different digital formats. Many of them come in HD. Uh, many of the contributors to Shutterstock are professional filmmakers. And Shutterstock reviews each clip for content and quality and adds 10,000 videos. Clips each week, so every time you visit, you can find something new.
0: Shutterstock gives you the assets you need to bring your creative projects to the next level, and they make it easy. They have sophisticated tools so you can search and drill down by category, clip resolution, contributor, and more. And Shutterstock is a complete offering with excellent customer service and dedicated reps, and also 24 hour support throughout the week. They have flexible pricing, so you can choose between individual clips or packages of videos. And you can download the clips in HD or save them with standard definition or web formats. They have a huge image library of photos, vectors, icons, and infographic templates.
1: You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. You don't need a credit card. Uh, You just start the account, begin using Shutterstock to find images, uh, save them in your clip box. And then once you decide to purchase, you can use the offer code SVU5 and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com. And for 30% off new accounts, use the offer code SVU5. We thank Shutterstock for their support.
0: The operator said it's probably four and a half to five months.
1: God. I know.
0: You know, Tui wants to go home to her dad's. I'm not so sure that's a good idea.
1: No, that's okay. I know the family. Um, I'll drive her home.
0: But what's her home life like? I mean, do you really think that's wise? I'm concerned there's just men there and... Matt and his sons have an unholy reputation.
1: She can't get any more pregnant. So your listener's choice pick for this episode is Top of the Lake. Top of the Lake is the first film from Jane Campion since the 2009 period drama Bright Star and it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. It was the first miniseries to play the festival, and it screened in its 350-minute entirety. Though I think they, every once in a while, gave people a bathroom break, or, you know, you're allowed to have lunch. They weren't monsters about it. <laughs> uh, it, it played in six parts on BBC. It was, a, it was a co-production of a few different countries, and seven in the U.S. on the Sundance Channel due to commercial breaks. It's in seven parts on Netflix, at least here in the U.S. So at Top of the Lake stars Mad Men's Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Elizabeth Moss as Detective Robin Griffin, who returns to Queenstown and the fictional smaller town of Lake Top in New Zealand, after having moved to Australia and started this career in the police. Uh, She's there to see her mother, who's sick, but she ends up getting pulled into this investigation involving a 12-year-old girl named Tui, who's pregnant and who goes missing, And there's a large cast because the kind of whole town gets involved a bit. Uh, Tui's father is a man named Matt Mitchum, who's played by Peter Mullen. And he heads up this compound where they clearly do like kind of nasty or undesirable things. Uh, His two sons are kind of uh, at his side as he does this. And then Holly Hunter, who uh, was the star of The Piano, of course, plays G.J., who is the leader of this women's camp. Uh, David Wenham is Detective Al Parker, who uh, Robin reports to at the the local police station. And then you have Thomas M. Wright as John O. Mitchum, uh, who Robin has a past with. Now, Matt, I'm curious about what you thought. I, since I watched this basically in one whole chunk, I got screeners when it was originally on TV. Uh, you Did you watch it in pieces? And how did that play to you as episodes?
0: Well, I watched it in several chunks, I guess. I watched the first episode by itself, and then I watched probably like two, three, and four, and then I watched five and six, and then I watched seven. So I guess I watched it in four four sittings. Uh, and in terms of how that played, I didn't think it played very well, frankly. I thought some of the episodes, they didn't even have – like it was clearly – and this was a pro- one of the problems I had with this uh I guess, what, what are we calling it? A miniseries? You actually called it both a film and a miniseries in your introduction, which because I thought at, was very interesting. At
1: Sundance, they called it a film in its uh, in the t- description. Huh. And, I, and I think, for me at least, and I'd love to hear what you think, but it feels like a film to me that just kind of arbitrarily got chopped up.
0: Yes, it feels. And that, that was a big problem, and maybe my biggest problem with uh, Top of the Lake, was I couldn't tell or the movie or the miniseries or the film or whatever it is seemed like it was unclear what it was is it a film or is it a miniseries and it it did seem sort of confused in terms of the storytelling it's sort of like i mean obviously the 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 images of the location are stunning but in terms of the visual quality of it i found it pretty frankly boring i mean other than the fact that every couple of scenes there's a shot of new zealand which is mind-blowing but in terms of the staging and the and the way it's shot it's shot sort of like a television show in terms of yeah, it's a lot of shot counter shot there's not a lot of really exciting use of camera let's say And in terms of, like, the way that the story progresses, it felt very kind of serialized, but there didn't really seem to be an ebb and flow within the episodes. You know, episode one – I guess episode one kind of climaxes in a a serialized way, but a lot of the middle episodes – They don't feel like they're building to a mini-climax at the end of the episode. They just kind of seem like they're arbitrarily stopping at the end of 48 minutes. Some of them almost seem like they're stopping almost between a scene or in the middle of a thought. You know, all of a sudden, with 30 seconds left to go in the episode, it just fades to black. And here come the credits. And then when you pick it up uh, with the next episode, it just picks right back up. And it's interesting to hear that it was actually cut in different ways – for what was it for BBC? Yes. So it was yes. 6 episodes for the BBC. I wonder if the 6 episode version maybe made a little more sense because some of the 7 episode breaks felt very arbitrary and and kind of uh, it, it just didn't it just didn't really do much to break it up. It was kind of frustrating. So to me that was a big problem with the with the with the I keep I don't know what to call it with the show with the movie whatever it is. It, it sort of seemed like a cross between a movie and a TV show and it, it I felt like it was it was too long to be a, a a movie and too short to be a TV show. Yeah. And as as seven hours or six hours, whatever it is, I found it kind of unsatisfying, frankly.
1: Yeah, I like this a lot more than you. I actually thought it was one of the best things I've seen uh, in terms of covering TV this year. Really? So far. Yes, I really really like it. But I think that I'm also I I you know like this is actually the type of thing that you're starting to see more often like it reminded me this aired before sentence channels current six hour uh series that's on right now called rectify which was also created by someone who's a filmmaker and also plays basically like a six hour movie Mm -hmm. and i think that there's something it's an interesting form i do think it has its kind of potential downsides and I, i like one of them being that i don't think they play very well over weeks i think that they play much better as a giant chunk often. But I do want to say I left out uh, Cambion's collaborators on this. It's co-directed by Garth Davis, and it's co-written by Jared Lee. So she did not manage to do this whole thing by herself. I think she kind of spread out the work a bit. But uh, I, I... I find it not a terribly good mystery in that. Well, I agree with you, you there. Know, like, I, I mean, I, I, and I don't think that was necessarily something that, like her foremost interest, mm-hmm. you know, that I think if you're, if looking at it from any kind of procedural, like viewpoint, I mean, even the mystery itself is one in which the girl, they find the girl and discover she's pregnant. And the first aspect of it is just trying to figure out how, who got her pregnant, you right. know, and that, doesn't really get answered and then and then she either runs away or disappears and it's not clear for a while you know which of those things has happened Mm -hmm. and if she's dead if she's not dead and you know I, i think like that that aspect of the mystery is not it's not doesn't give it a lot of forward momentum but i thought that in the like in the larger sense of this portrait of a town that it kind of accepted a certain amount of trauma you know like between like what you understand fuels it economically and then the ultimate reveal of like uh you know at the end i i think that like it's about how people live in a lot of ways about how people live with these very dark things that they kind of half know are happening and i thought that was very interesting to me
0: yeah i guess the ideas are kind of interesting i but again this is something where i felt like the movie with uh well, I, I, call gonna, it a movie. Well, call, call it call whatever I want. I'm just going to stop complaining about that. <laughs> um, but that was another thing that felt a little sort of muddled to me. Is it about the mystery? Is it about the ideas? And is it about the themes? And I didn't always feel like they meshed very well. I didn't really think that the camp, the paradise camp, with all these women who have sort of – they're almost like hippies. They've sort of like dropped out of society to start their own kind of hippie commune here. I get how thematically that all fit into this idea about, you know, women and and men and these sort of like domineering men who are trying to control women and and all that sort of thing. But I didn't really feel like they fit very neatly in any way into the mystery. And I don't really think that that area of the... I don't even want to call it a subplot, because there's really no plot there. But that sort of setting, those characters, I don't think they really pay off in a very interesting way. And I kind of thought Holly Hunter was not very good in this uh, movie. I mean, she seems sort of wasted. I never really felt like I understood her character. I didn't get a good sense of who she was, what she was doing, why all these other women were following her, why they looked to her. She was... She was so, like, blunt and and brisk with them and kind of cruel, which was kind of entertaining at times. But on a practical level, I just went, why are we with these women? Why are they with her? I didn't really feel like that whole world kind of connected to the larger mystery that was going on or mysteries because you're right. It starts off with this mystery of who – uh, you know, who is the father of this very young girl's child? And then what happened to the girl? She goes missing by the end of the first episode. So it's sort of a mystery on top of a mystery.
1: See, that's interesting. Cause I f- like your emphasis on the mystery, like the mystery was maybe the least interesting part of this for me. I feel like it is fundamentally a drama and this portrait of this kind of isolated and almost like tribal town, right? Like Lake Lake top where it's set right. is is far out. It's in this gorgeous area, but like, it's the point there's a whole, s- there's a sequence in which she goes off to question someone and you're made aware of the fact that if she needed backup, like, people are so far away that, you know, she would basically, she's on her own. Right. Like, there, no one would come for her. But, you know, in ter- in terms of the, like, the female compound and then the kind of male compound, like, right. run by uh, Matt Mitchum, and Peter Mullen is really good in this. He, I think he's pretty, he's one of the best yes. uh, performances there. Uh, I, th- I, I feel like that just fits in, you know, like, Campion, and I really like Campion as a director, <laughs> she, um she's always dealt with gender right. in this very interesting way sure. and i think in that case you have like you have these extremes i mean like i don't like peter mullen and and holly Hollander basically have the same stringy gray haircut you know they're both like they're heads of these two kind of gendered separated areas and i feel like both are these kind of negative spaces mm-hmm. you know like paradise is the name of the place that they're in and there's all this kind of weird themes of like uh kind of like pre-fall, right? Like uh, you have that moment where Matt takes ecstasy. He's like this very angry character and he takes ecstasy with this woman from the camp and they're like, have this like paradise moment, right? Where they're they're kind of drugged out and they're like, so like they're kind of like free hanging out spirits in the wild. And... and then he comes down and like is furious. right? And you know, you have that moment and you have a later moment involving the children of the town. And they're both these kind of moments of like, you know what, prelapsarian like uh, innocence, and I feel like then you have this divide, like this kind of like whatever happened afterwards, right? You have this divide, and like both both the like uh, the kind of all male compound where you see like dogs in cages, and like it's just it seems kind of feral. And the women's cap, which is kind of this ridiculous place, you know, like a lot of the characters are mm-hmm. silly; they're delib- like they're kind of ridiculous characters. I feel like both of them are presented as like, like kind of uh, problematic, right? Like they're these two poles,
0: right? I see what you are saying. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. And the observation that they have uh, similar looks, the, the the you know the the Peter Mullen character and the Holly Hunter character that's that's interesting. You're, I hadn't really seen that, but you are right. I can I can see what what's going on there and and that is kind of interesting i would say in terms of presenting though that this this this, this portrait of a town or an area I didn't really feel like I got a very good sense of it, even in six hours. You know, I get that there's this one compound and there's this other compound, but in terms of, and we hear a lot about how this Matt Mitchum character, Peter Mullins character is kind of like, he's sort of like the kingpin of the, of the area. He kind of like employs a lot of people. He might have these, I don't want to spoil too much, but he might have like these underground businesses. He might be kind of a shady character, Uh, but I didn't really get a sense of the wider area. How exactly They keep talking about his influence and his power but i didn't get a sense of this wider world it seems so contained that i didn't really get a, i felt like a really complete portrait of the of, of of the world that's being established beyond these these two poles these which as you said i feel kind of uh, incomplete maybe by design i don't know and then in terms of the characters the ones that we have i didn't really feel like a lot of them and again i'm sure you'll disagree with me but i didn't really feel like a lot of them like deepened as the Story went on. I almost felt like they got less interesting as the story went on like Matt Mitchum that character and I agree Peter Mullen gives a, an intense impressive performance and he's a really talented actor he was great in this little very dark independent movie called Tyrannosaur which I saw I guess a year or two ago which is oh my god is yeah. so good but so dark and uh, he's kind of a similar presence here where he's very menacing very intimidating but has this kind of softer Charm to him yeah, yeah little well. roguish little charming but, and, and, but kind of like he can flip a switch in a second and go from charming to menacing just like that But I didn't feel like the additional layers that got revealed really added to the character. I almost felt like they they subtracted. I felt like he became more of a stereotype or a caricature as the the show went on. And then Elizabeth Moss, who I love on Mad Men, is one of my favorite actors on Mad Men. I did not think she was particularly well cast here. I mean, she's not a New Zealand actress – she doesn't have a particularly good New Zealand uh, accent. That's sort of problematic, uh, depending on how much you want to pay attention to it. And I just didn't think that the role really suited her talents. You know, like, she is so great on Mad Men. But here, I didn't, I didn't really buy her as a cop right away. That took a long time to just accept. She doesn't seem, I mean, maybe, I didn't think it made it clear. Is she supposed to be a good cop or not very effective cop? I couldn't quite figure that out.
1: Well, I think that she's supposed to be A cop, like I I feel like the part of the reason that she has such difficulty is that the the rules aren't the normal rules are not in place, right? Like, I I, we see really early on that we see the way her boss deals with the case of Tui, Mm -hmm. right? And it's not by any of like what you would imagine the normal recommended rules are. Yeah, you know, it runs by this kind of like,
0: this is how we do it. This is how we do things out here. I know these people, therefore, yeah. I don't know. I just see it. Just seemed like it wasn't uh the, the this role wasn't suited to her talents in terms of like being playing the cop and also having this sort of like very intense very physical relationship with this guy who she has a, a shared past with uh, uh John i think is the character played by thomas m right there i didn't think they had a kind of a great spark or chemistry there seemed to be something missing there in all of their scenes they have a lot of like intense scenes a lot of love scenes i didn't get a lot See, out of that i
1: mean like i i feel like she doesn't she's not an easy fit in this. And I feel like the, she doesn't make a very convincing New Zealander. Yeah. And I,
0: mean, I don't know. You think that's I feel... deliberate because her character is no. kind of an outsider? No. I feel no. like no. she <laughs>
1: just is not doing a very good, you know, accent. Uh, but I actually, I really liked her relationship with Jono. And like, huh. I really, really like the way, I mean, like, I don't feel like I've ever even seen a real attempt to deal with that on screen, which mm-hmm. is like to deal with, This dark, this trauma that happened in her past that she, that kind of is slowly revealed is like part of the reason she hasn't come back. She doesn't like to come back. Uh, But that also, like, they're dealing with... Kind of what his role was in it, I right. thought
0: was really interesting and kind of psychologically complex. That was one of the. I'll, I'll give you that. That was one of the better parts, I would say, of the whole series. And and those scenes are pretty effective and interesting. I'll, I'll give you that.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know that she is. She's a very convincing cop, but I also don't know that. it didn't really bother me because I felt like I, you know, not everyone fits into the role of like fits easily into a role of a of a movie or TV cop, and I don't think I had any kind of baggage attached to what type of cop she was supposed to play, which was interesting to me. You know, like I didn't I also did not know if she was supposed to be a very good cop or not. But I I liked the way she dealt with this very kind of like non-obvious I I think, like, non-typical portrayal of, like, uh, an all-male kind of chauvinistic workplace. Yeah. It wasn't, like, a lot of people being, like, oh, girly, like, you can't handle, you know, like, a lot, usually that's laid on with a very heavy hand. True. And it wasn't in this. In a lot of the case, it was just she, her having to kind of manage a workplace in which she didn't really just have a place, Mm -hmm. right? And I thought that was really, that was drawn really well as well but so I I don't know I mean like a lot of I thought there was a lot of this here that I think especially with the treatment of a female lead character that just seemed extremely feminine in its approach to me which Mm -hmm. and I and I just I feel like I feel like this with Campion a lot of the time where I just like watching her films it never occurs to me how dominant just like kind of a male like like male storytelling is you know until I watch her films and they feel so distinctly feminine to me
0: and uh, that's how this feels to me as well. Right. And I just hate women, so <laughs> that's why. I think that's what I'm trying to say here, Allison, right. is I have a deep, deep problem with that. No, I think that's a great point. And I, you know, like on paper, I was super excited to watch this. Yeah. And everything you're describing sounds great to me. Uh-huh. I just found, I just found the whole... You just didn't see it. There. I just didn't see yeah. it there. And the whole thing just felt a little watery to me yeah. to not to make a horrible <laughs> <laughs> joke on the title. It really did. It just yeah. like... You know, like this, it really felt like a a really awesome two hour movie that had been kind of stretched like taffy to a not so great six hour miniseries. And I, I don't know. To me, it's like if you're making a TV show, make a TV show. If you're making a movie, make a movie. Know what you're making and and do that. It, this seemed to me almost like the worst of all worlds in terms of it was, it was really long and it was sort of like it was a TV show length, but the storytelling wasn't really TV show-like. But the visuals were TV show-like. There wasn't a lot of visual oomph to it. It looked very kind of workmanlike and it is what it is and then the performances I didn't really I, I didn't really love so I w- this was a disappointment for me it really was I you know like just what you're describing sounds fantastic I wish I had gotten that out of it
1: all right well a split vote from us yeah. on this one but that is Top of the Lake you can check it out yourself it is streaming on Netflix all right next up is Behind the 8 Ball in which we give you a rapid fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming two that are expiring soon and one pick chosen blindly by number from our Netflix
0: queue Matt, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Three new films. All right. First up, Allison, if you build a baseball field in Iowa, they will come. But apparently if you build a movie and you're the guy who made the greatest TV show of all time, arguably, and you make it with all the stuff that made the TV show great, they will not come. And I don't understand how that happens, Allison, but David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos – Uh, Made a movie last year and it tanked. No one saw it. It, it. It did no business. This is the guy who made The Sopranos, one of the biggest cultural touchstones of the last 15 years, 25 years, 50 years, you know, like the signature television show of our time. I don't know, maybe were people pissed off about the ending of The Sopranos still? I don't know. Maybe that's what it was. But whatever the reason, people did not go see Not Fade Away, which is now available on iTunes and VOD. And I have to tell you that it really disappointed me because I like this movie. And and the more I've thought about it, the more I liked it. I'm really looking forward to seeing it again. It's a semi-autobiographical story about a young man growing up in New Jersey. He's struggling with his rock band, The Twilight Zones, trying to live up to his father's expectations. The father, by the way, played by The Sopranos, uh, James Gandolfini. And the movie is not perfect. It's not a masterpiece. It's messy, but it's beautiful. It's personal. It's got some good music in it. it. has some very memorable images and ideas and sequences. And the ending is fantastic. If you like the ending of The Sopranos, I think you might love the ending of this movie. So that's a big recommendation for Not Fade Away. Uh, next up, I have a question for you, Allison. Yes. What you gonna do when they come for you? You are going to watch Bad Boys 2 on Crackle, Allison. You're not going to watch Bad Boys 1 because that's a waste of time. But you are going to watch Bad Boys 2, which I just rewatched for the first time since it came out. And realized, much to my dismay, God help me, that this movie is actually kind of amazing. It's indulgent, it's deranged, it's crazy, and it's way too long, which I think makes it the ultimate Michael Bay movie, the ultimate summation of everything good and bad about his movies. Will Smith and Martin Lawrence return as two Miami cops. Allison, they refuse to play by the rules. They're loose cannons. They're not careful. Someone's going to ask for their guns and badges, and it's going to be Joey Pantoliano who plays their boss. Oh, my God. I, as as much as it pains me to say it, this Allison might go down in history as one of the last great car chase movies because car chases, even in movies that we love, like Fast Five, all the car chases are – they're all CGI's, a lot of effects. This movie has arguably too many of them, but it has some amazing car chases, a lot of it done with practical cars, not with CGI. I want to hate this movie, I really do, but I kind of love it now. It's Bad Boys 2, it's available on Crackle, and finally, also available on Crackle, and now for something completely different, is Crumb, the 1994 documentary by Terry Zweigoff about cartoonist Robert Crum and his very demented family. It's a fabulous film about art uh, and artists, the compulsion to create, and how that is often inextricably linked with our pain and our failures as human beings. I think it's one of like the definitive documentaries about not just comics, but about art in general and about screwed up families. Not a lighthearted romp, not a feel good documentary. So not something I pick for, say, date night, (laughs) but a fabulous film. And it is available on Crackle. Okay, two expiring films. Okay. Now, first of all, it's a sad fact of life, Allison, that humans use just 20% of their brains. Now, mega super geniuses like you or I, we use like 22 23% maybe. But for mere mortals like Bradley Cooper, they only use 20%. And that's being generous in some cases. But in Limitless, which is expiring from Netflix on May 16th, Mr. Cooper plays a struggling novelist with writer's block who takes an experimental drug that gives him access to 100% of his brain, Allison. Suddenly, he's a great writer and a better and smarter person. But Allison, as the saying goes, ignorance is bliss, especially if you're Bradley Cooper. This thriller from Neil Berger, director of The Illusionist, uh, the magician movie from a few years ago that was not The Prestige. It's not a great movie, but it's a pretty fun one. And I like the way Berger kind of uses color to depict the character's mental state. Very gray, drab tones when he's normal. And then bright, vivid pops of color when he suddenly... I don't know, charged on brain juice or whatever it is. Uh, Plus, the opening credits of this movie are fantastic, some of the best in recent memory. So if you like opening credits, even if you don't want to watch the whole movie before it expires, you should at least watch the opening credits. That's limitless, and it expires on Netflix on May 16th. And finally, I wanted to point out something that's happening in a few weeks on Netflix. It's uh, another one of these big content deals that Netflix has with in this case, Viacom, um, they're not renewing this licensing deal they have with them, which means a lot of shows from Viacom stations like MTV, Nickelodeon, and Comedy Central they're all going to be taken off of Netflix. Some of these shows may return. you know these rights deals are very nebulous often, and they're fluid they change. but in the meantime, if you love watching iCarly or SpongeBob Squarepants when your kids aren't looking or kids. If you love watching Jersey Shore uh, or Reno 911 when your parents aren't looking, you're going to have to finish these series before May 22nd, when a big chunk of these titles are currently scheduled to expire. Okay, well, one from your queue. You gave me number 99, uh, which this week is Shark Night, formerly Shark Knight 3D, <laughs> but three dimensions of shark-related terror and or exploitation was simply too much for Netflix's bandwidth to handle, Allison. So you get just two dimensions on Instant Streaming. I believe this is a movie about sharks. I suppose it takes place at night. Although, as I recall, the trailer was set mostly during the day, so maybe I shouldn't think too deeply about the title. The movie was directed by David R. Ellis. Sadly, it was his final film. He passed away earlier this year at the age of 60. Uh, He's the director of Snakes on a Plane and uh, and Cellular. And also the also poorly titled The Final Destination, which was not The Final Destination. There was another one of those. Anyway, that's Shark Night, not in 3D, available on Netflix. Allison, are you ready for your uh, countdown? I hope yours isn't as long as mine. I was just rambling. Yeah. You I was drunk on... Uh, I took that drug. So I'm yeah. operating at peak capacity right now. 100% of my brain. And you're using it all to make on. I'm using it all.
1: Yeah, yeah. Alright, well, yes, I'm ready. Alright, why
0: don't you start with uh, your three new releases?
1: Okay, first off is Like You Know It All, which is new on Hulu. It's so a 2009 film from Hong Sang-soo, the prolific Korean indie director whose films don't always get distribution in the U.S. I think this one did. I remember seeing it originally either on the festival circuit uh, or in limited release back in 2009 Fittingly, if it was a festival circuit, it is about a film director who's critically acclaimed, if not terribly financially successful. He is on the jury of a film festival, but spends most of his time just kind of bumming around, schmoozing, getting trashed, and then falling asleep during his movies. Which, if you have spent any kind of extended amount of time on the festival circuit, is painfully true <laughs> to the experience. Uh, so, uh, you know, props there. And he he goes around kind of visiting uh, visiting friends and managing to offend them, uh, and running into an ex. And, uh, you know, Hong Sang-soo manages to always have these deceptively simple setups that are just, like, kind of, like, razor-edged inside. He's he's, never gentle on his characters, particularly these main characters who seem semi autobiographical. So that is like, you know, it all. It is now streaming on Hulu. New to Hulu plus. And I haven't seen this yet. And I don't know that I would probably give it a strong recommendation based on what I've read about it, but I feel like it's noteworthy just for its novelty value. It is I, Steve which is uh, probably not the greatest biopic about Steve Jobs but it is the first it is the first film to be made by Funny or Die stars Justin Long as Steve Jobs of course a Mac. Right, and lost, right. lost Jorge Garcia as Steve Wozniak. Uh, Funny or Die was very open about the fact that the script for the film was written in three days and it was shot in five days. Nice, Yes. And they took also pride in the fact that they did like basically no research. So it's probably the least accurate uh, of the films. They kind of, uh, you know, part of the joke of this film is that there are two Steve Jobs biopics in the works. There's the one called Jobs starring Ashton Kutcher. Which is actually coming out this year, and then uh, Aaron Sorkin is writing one based on the biography by Walter Isaacson. So those two will probably be more awards aspiring and Mm -hmm. you know generally researched. But this one beat them all by uh, you know coming in under eight days of total production or whatever it is, which is fairly impressive, you know, just for that. So that is I, Steve. It is not streaming on Funny or Die anymore, but it is on Hulu Plus. Okay. And finally, uh, new to Netflix is The Cabin in the Woods. Uh, 2011, 2012 got its theatrical release. Uh, directed by Drew Goddard, written by Joss Whedon. Really it has to be one of the most enjoyable viewing experiences I had last year. It's just so much fun. It is this... Meta horror movie if you have not seen it yet, but it's also a pretty like pretty effective horror comedy on its own right. While just digging into a lot of the classic tropes of your bunch of attractive teenagers slash college students go off into the woods to get slaughtered sometimes after having sex, you know, and it just really it provides a backstory for that that is phenomenal and smart and very Joss Whedon. Um, it's it's if you haven't seen it yet. I don't know why you haven't seen it yet, but it is very worth a look as soon as possible. I am looking forward to seeing it again. I don't think I've seen it since it was in theaters, and it's it's so much fun. So that's Cabin in the Woods. It is now streaming on Netflix. All right.
0: How about two expiring titles?
1: Okay. Both of these are expiring from Netflix. The first is A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints. This is Dito Montiel's 2006 film. He wrote and directed it. It's based on his own life story, and I think he also wrote a book about it first. Expiring on May fifteenth, I think what's interesting about this film is that it is its cast. Really, Uh, in two thousand six, Shia LaBeouf had a slightly different career uh, from the one he has now. That now that he I think has like retired from. Blockbuster lead lead and is now only making difficult indie films per his own you know announcement. Uh, also interesting, Channing Tatum in this, and he was still in his kind of I am an attractive hunk of meat phase in his career, as opposed to the uh, he's s- not anymore. Now he's uh, a list hunk of meat. I feel oh, okay, like. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough.
0: Duly noted. <laughs> exactly. Carry on.
1: So I, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, Melanie Diaz is in it. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. is in it as the character Shia LaBeouf grows up to be, I believe. So I just like an. Interesting Interesting cast. It was, you know, like a fairly well received indie. But I think you know, there's always something interesting in looking at just uh, like careers that are changing very quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, 2006 was not that long ago, and yet it, it kind of was at this point. So that's A Guide to Recognizing yeah. Your Saints. It is expiring on May 15th. Expiring on May 19th is a film that I have not seen yet and that I really would like to before it expires. It's distant. This is the 2002 film uh, directed by Nuri Bilga Ceylan. If I'm saying that right, or something. That sounds pretty that. good. Thank you. He is the director of Three Monkeys, Climates, and Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, which I believe we talked about a little bit. You know, a very, very well-respected, uh, you know, critically beloved, festival-beloved filmmaker, Turkish filmmaker, and this was one of his earlier films. And it's basically, it's just about a factory worker who... He loses his job and he goes to live with a relative who's kind of more intellectual and wealthy. They have nothing in common. Uh, and they're both kind of leading these aimless lives and it's about how they, they try to bond and then don't. So there's distance between them. I'm guessing is where the title comes from. Uh, this is a, you know, uh, Jaylan is a director who I don't always love the kind of the content of his films, but he has some of the most beautiful framing, uh, of uh, just like his his eye eyes amazing so uh just for looking just for looking at uh The compositions alone, I would say, this film is probably worth checking out. So that is Distant. It is expiring from Netflix on May 19th. All right. And how about one random
0: film from your queue?
1: You gave me number 31, which is a film that I can put in to remind myself to check out again. It's The Game, the 1997 film directed by David Fincher, starring Michael Douglas. I haven't seen it since 1997. Oh, it's on Netflix? It is on Netflix. I haven't seen it since... I'm going to be adding it to my queue now. Yeah. uh, You know, and I remember it being in theaters. I remember thinking it was fine, probably. I, I don't, you know, have any strong opinion on it, but I really want to take a look at it again. Given, you know, it's in
0: the Criterion collection now. Yeah,
1: and it's David Fincher who, right. you know, and and this was kind of in the the earlier period of his his filmmaking career so that's uh that is currently streaming on netflix Mm,
0: and now it's in my queue as well how about Mm -hmm. that look at that even i'm learning things on this (laughs) week's episode of film spotting all right should we move on to our listeners choice picks allison let's do that all right i think we've got a pretty interesting lineup here this episode first up we have a film available on vod and digital according to the distributor's website it's available on itunes amazon voodoo PS3 and Xbox. So if you've got any of those things, you can find it. It's called Sun Don't Shine. It's written and directed by Amy Simons, who you may know as the star... Of Upstream Color, Shane Carruth's new movie. And uh, she doesn't actually appear in this film. She's just the writer-director. The description of the plot – and I've kind of heard not to to know too much about what's going to happen, so I've sort of avoided details. But here's the plot description. A couple takes a tense and mysterious road trip through the desolate yet hauntingly beautiful landscape of central Florida – the movie won a special jury award at the 2012 uh, South by Southwest Film Festival. It was nominated for a Best Film Not Playing at a Theater Near You Award from the Gothams. It got great reviews. Symet got great reviews as an up-and-coming talent. I haven't got a chance to see this movie yet, Allison. And I'm really dying to. Yeah. I almost just canceled the whole podcast this week just to go watch it. <laughs> but I didn't do that. But we made it a listener's choice option for our next episode. So that's option number one.
1: All right. Option number two. There's no connection here at all. Um, It is on Hulu. It's new to Hulu. It is I Spit on Your Grave, the 1978 original version. It's a kind of notorious exploitation film. It's uh, about basically... A woman who's raped and then has her violent, violent revenge. She's violently, violently raped and has her violent, violent revenge mm. on the people who did it. Uh, it was extremely controversial. I, Roger Ebert gave it, I think, of kind of famously... famously zero, zero star. Zero yeah. star like, review about how it like just made him depressed about humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also, you know it's like kind of legendary in its own way and it's you know one of those landmarks of this exploitation of exploitation in general uh so neither of us have seen it we're both kind of curious i've seen the terrible uh 2010 remake which i really don't recommend so I, you know i have some morbid curiosity about this one it is kind of one of those if you're like a genre film follower it's it's a landmark you know for whatever that's worth that is streaming on hulu okay i haven't seen that one either I, th- that was your idea actually when we I'm, found it I'm, you're I curious would, i am curious and i think it could make for
0: a really interesting conversation it certainly would make an interesting follow-up to top of the lake that's yeah that's, yeah, that's for sure all right well that's option two option three which is available on Netflix. We're we're crossing all kinds of... you got different options based on... uh,
1: This might actually tie them together a bit. You think so? Of of all these three films. This is the connective tissue? Well, it's set in Florida as well, right? I believe it is, yes. And it's kind
0: of got some exploitation to it. Just a little. Just a smidge. All right. It's (laughs) called The Paperboy. It is available now on Netflix. This is a 2012 film. Directed by Lee Daniels, who made uh, Shadowboxer, which I think we've talked about before on the podcast. He also directed Precious, uh, which was a, an acclaimed film. And this is a mystery about a death row inmate. The cast is amazing. Matthew McConaughey, Nicole Kidman, John Cusack, and Zac Efron, amongst others. There's more. The movie premiered at Cannes, where it was met with, I would say... What would, what would you say it was met with, Allison? I'd say... Amusement and derision. Perfect description, right there. It became uh, sort of the stuff of instant legend because of its weirdness. Two scenes in particular were singled out for, I would say, description and maybe mockery as well. <laughs> One in which, uh, how can I put this on an all ages uh, podcast? John Cusack. I, I there's brings, no way there's, there's no, no way. way john cusack does something to nicole kidman from across the room which yeah, is... he like kind of uses his psychic powers on her or something. <laughs> fair enough yeah all right that's one and then in another scene uh, nicole kidman does something to zach efron uh, which is uh which is uh, it's, it's a thing she does a thing she gives him first aid yes that is a very very delicate way of putting it <laughs> but it is accurate uh we have both seen this movie i believe yes Uh, I did not particularly care for
1: it. I did not either, but I do think, as with I Spit on Your Grave, it will make for an interesting
0: conversation. I agree with you there. I think it would make an extremely interesting conversation. So that's The Paperboy available on Netflix, and that is option number three. Which movie should
1: we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, May 13th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account. That's at filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode,
0: which will be on Tuesday, May 21st. Film Spotting SVU is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow Allison and I on Twitter at Allison Wilmore or at Matt Singer. And you can follow our show at FilmSpottingSVU. It's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Alison Wilmore. Thanks for listening.